Hello and welcome to the GLT podcast series with the Greenshaw Learning Trust and Friends Book Club, where we talk all things teaching and learning with leading educationalists across the world. My name is Rhiannon Rainbow. And my name is Dave Tushingham. This is a place to enjoy listening to organic conversations between teachers and authors, a journey in bringing the latest evidence-based literature into the classroom. And so here is a podcast of our second session of GLT Book Club. Where we were joined by David Didow to look at his book, Making Kids Cleverer. Let's get stuck in. Welcome, everybody. This is our fifth Greenshaw Learning Trust and Friends Book Club session. And we are joined with our second special guest this, e this evening or this afternoon. And that is with David Didow. It's absolutely fantastic to have him here. He's waving on the screen for those of you who can't see him. It's... Um, so welcome to our book club. We've got a number of people from within and beyond the trust on here, and it's absolutely fantastic to see it growing. It's not just about maths, it's about any subject, any phase. We are just keen to learn from as many people as possible to help improve the teaching and learning and our pedagogy. And the fact that we've got David here with us this afternoon to help add richness to our discussion is just fantastic. So what I'd like to do, if that's okay, is try and wind mind bit, bit up as quickly as possible and to hand over to David. So we are going to be looking today at his book, Making Kids Cleverer, and specifically with a focus on his From Novice to Expert section, which starts on page 233 to 245. It doesn't mean we won't talk about other aspects of the book because there's so much going on in there, but that was our prompt for today. So David is a freelance writer, blogger, speaker, trainer, and author. His um, blog, The Learning Spy, started in 2011, and that's just been absolutely fantastic for everybody who's looked at that and listened to it with the, with the different things that he's covered in there, successes and failures with his own classroom, his, the way he synthesized his years of teaching experience through the lens of educational research. He's just done so much. And if you look him up, he's also got quite a library of books to his name as well. So there's an awful lot to be talking to him about. So what I'd like to do, please, is just talk a little bit about um, what we're going to be looking at today. So Dave Tushingham and I met with David um, back in December, quite early on when we were looking at having guests along to our book club. And we explained that his session would be following the one with Mark McCourt on teaching for mastery. And at that point, he said, actually, the book in the section you're recommending, I think we'd be better off looking at this one. So David recommended this book and this section from this book as well to complement what we were doing previously. So what I'd like to do is um, hand over to David, actually, and ask if you'd be able to provide um, a little bit of a, an introduction, um, explain your thinking behind um, this section in Making Kids Cleverer, or just a little bit more information about the book in itself, actually, if that's all right, David. So I'll hand over to you. There we go. I've un I managed to unmute myself. Um, thanks, Renan, and everyone else for having me on. Uh, so, uh, as you may or may not know, the book is uh, a, a manifesto. I called it in the subtitle for closing the advantage gap in as far as that's possible. And 
one of the strands um, that I investigated was uh, the sorts of pedagogical approaches that are more likely to be more effective with uh, more disadvantaged students. And so one of the uh, suggestions that I make in the book is that if um, if you're if you're if you're concerned with trying to close that gap, then understanding the difference between how um, experts and novices think and act is a really, really useful starting point to um, affecting change in schools and classrooms. And uh, I suppose one of the most important things for us to 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 be aware of is that expertise and uh, and 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 being a novice are not are not things that you occupy in any kind of um, uh, holistic sense. So we are we are an expert at things, uh, and there are things that you're everybody is going to be rubbish at something. Uh, or never have tried something. And so you're going to be a novice, uh, an extraordinary, you know, far more things than you're an expert in. And, um, and it, but it's, but it happens in the school context that what, uh, what you're, what you're teaching, the, 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 the subject or the topic that you're standing in front of your students and talking about, or, or sitting at your desk and talking to them about remotely, uh, is something that you're far more likely to be expert in and that they will be relative novices and and understanding the difference between how you think about the area of your expertise and how the how your students think about that same area uh, is a really profitable area of um, exploration and um, I, I I summarized this particular section on page 240 I put basically the differences uh, the the, the the headline differences between um, how experts and novices think into a table. So if you, I don't know if you've, if you've all been given access to the PDF that I made aware to, to, to Dave and Rhiannon, but if you have, uh, you can, and you haven't already read the section because you were busy, uh, you can, you can refer to that now. And um, so if the, the rest of the chapter is, is a, an exploration um, and, uh, and a debate about all of those uh, different, differences there we are uh, so how's that for a for a brief intro that's brilliant thank you david and, and sorry for my slight pause there what i've tried to very quickly do is put a link in the comments um box the, the chat box to those pages just in case um people don't have them live in front of them there so thank you ever so much for that um something's just popped up so here we go who would like to begin then? I know following on from David can be, be quite daunting, but who's going to get the ball rolling for us this afternoon? With reflections, comments, or even questions for him. Okay, so Matt, I'll start with you and then I'll come to you if that's okay then, Dave. Hi, can you hear me? Is it all working? So um, I, th I think I've still got sort of, I guess, previous ones that we, we've talked about. Um, ringing in my ears and I think that the passage that that struck me as sort of most pertinent was um it's on page 233 and it's the it talks about novices needing guidance on on what to notice and what's important and what distinctions to make and I think you know thinking about it with a maths teacher hat on um we, we've talked previously about the importance about structuring our examples and the links between the different examples and what we expose students to and the I guess that both the, the breadth and the depth of those examples 
Um, and, it, and I guess it's reassuring really to, to read it in this format because actually it's those those sequences of examples and, and how it changes and what changes and why something changes, which are really, really important. And I think, you know, that structure for us to sort of consider um, is obviously going to help to make the students start to make those distinctions themselves and, and probably move from that procedural fluency into a bit more of a conceptual fluency. But I just think, you know, as, as some of us have done a few of these now, the, the same things are sort of coming up and the, that sort of passage really highlighted to me how important that would be. And I thought I'd share it. And it's just really helpful to know, isn't it, that, that what we're doing and what we're looking at in different places, it, it is starting to link together. And what I'm finding as well is I'm moving along the continuum from novice to expert in my ability to just read and comprehend and take on board what all of the different passages and books and conversations we're having. I'm starting to understand it that little bit more rather than feeling overwhelmed by all of the new language. Um, Dave, I'll stop talking now and bring you in. Yeah, I think just to, to add to that as well, um, it lit something in my mind, um, the idea of a novice and expert thinking very differently, because before reading that, I think subconsciously I saw them as being uh, one and the same and that a novice that you would teach maybe by breaking things down more and you would instruct um, in smaller steps and there might be increased scaffold and the questioning that you, you give to a novice might be slightly different, more, more supportive, um, and the expert is is the same. And, and what you're doing, though, is you're taking some of that scaffold away. But, but reading the article, and the reason why I chose this particular article is because I found that it really transformed the way I think in the classroom. Um, the idea that instructional techniques could be negative or, or might not have much impact at all for experienced learners and, and experts and, and the idea that we need far more of that teaching for our novices but we need far more opportunities um, for them to, um, I think Matty um, said about the conceptual fluency, um, the opportunities to be able to engage in that and so it really sort of transformed the way I think in the classroom um, and, and how I'm teaching and, and just wanted to share that and see if um, anyone wanted to build on or, or wanted to sort of comment on, on anything there. Well, it seems to have sparked um, a, a reflection or something in Lucy. So I'll bring you in now, if I may, Lucy. Yeah, I think the whole passage and what Dave was just saying is like probably before I read this, I just kind of thought as of a novice as someone that knew less than an expert, someone that knew more. Um, but I didn't really think of them as someone that might learn differently because they know less. So I thought of a novice as someone I just needed to tell them more things to. And once they told them all the things that they needed to know, they would just actually know it. But reading through this, just thinking about the cognitive load and everything. So if they literally know nothing, we can give them 20 examples and they won't really be able to understand that. So, yeah, we've talked about um, examples that we give them before in our last session, didn't we? And actually, perhaps I need to go perhaps a lot slower with the younger years and perhaps I need to do fewer examples and just make sure they really get that fluency first and, and that might in the long term be a lot better just building things up more slowly. And I think that almost comes to the session we, we looked at um, a, a small group of us over Christmas about the choice of examples and exercises as well and how that can help and um, so we, um, we take, we're trying to take our book club to a conference setting with um, the Boolean Maths Hub non-conference later on this month. So we'll let you know how that one goes. But Wayne Partridge has a question here. I think he submitted it in the chat because he's got, he's got one of his little ones climbing around his shoulders at the moment. And I believe it's directed at you, if that's okay, um, David. So I'll, I'll pose that question. He says, in terms of developing expertise, in schools, we tend to put things into subjects because it's neater. 
How do we encourage pupils and teachers to think across subjects so our knowledge can be more flexible? Great question. Um, okay, I, so I don't think we put uh, knowledge into subjects just because it's easier. I think we do it because uh, the different areas of, of, of intellectual endeavour uh, come from different traditions and use different ways of making meaning and different conceptual lenses for viewing the world and that uh, these are bodies of knowledge which have been formed through particular processes of inquiry over you know sometimes uh, over hundreds of years and so a subject like like mathematics has a very very different set of traditions and a different and very different ways of of generating new knowledge to uh, a subject like like my own which is which is um english literature english language which are you know quite distinct in its in its in the ways in which it, it deals with information and and um and and is in and is, and is useful so so i i think i'd want to defend subject boundaries uh, a little bit more um than than thinking that they're just utilitarian uh, or simpler for, for for schools um but thinking across those boundaries i think is is um a real hallmark of expertise and, and and i think in order to to think effectively in more than one discipline i think you've got to be a relative expert in in more than one discipline so in order to you know to for instance to find the the common ground between i don't know uh, music and mathematics so sometimes people sort of talk about the the fact that music is mathematical and that may be true but for that to be of any purpose or use for you as an individual you've also got to be a pretty skilled musician as well as a as a knowledgeable ma and skilled mathematician and without those two bodies of expertise you can't i don't, I, I, I suggest you can't really think meaningfully across the boundary. Does that make sense? So that so that for for students to be able to to reach across those boundaries whilst in school, um, arguably, you know, certainly in the within the confines of you know what we're specifically preparing students for in terms of their examination subjects, um, there's, there's there's limited need for students to do that with at school now you, you arguably and correctly perhaps you might think actually well what we're doing is far more than just preparing students to meet those examinations certainly uh you know if you are you come unstuck this year um but uh but but i think that that rather than thinking and i think often we've got this belief that you can kind of shortcut shortcut cross-curricular thinking um, I think that there, there isn't really a meaningful way of, of shortcutting and, and, and actually maybe what we should be championing and, uh, and embracing is the long way around and that, that there is value to, to a slowly acquiring the, the, the expert vantage in more than one discipline. No, that makes an awful lot of sense. And I suppose it's it's not until really, I mean, conversations I have with my daughter in year 11, she's now starting to see the way different subjects that she's been looking at in school now for a number of years are linking. And then we see that when, if we are, if we work with year 11 students, or sorry, uh, sixth form students quite often is, that's where when they've selected the smaller number of subjects they're going to be working on, if they Interlap, interleave and overlap like um, a really nice 
a really nice um, set of A-levels to do can sometimes be maths, further maths and physics because there's so much overlay between them. But then we can also have students do, that do subjects such as biology, maths and English. So biology and English are so, uh, biology is so knowledge rich and then you might argue that English and maths are also very, very different. But students are able to somehow find some ways of connecting between them as well. Um, Una, you've had your hands up, so thank you very much. I'd like to bring you in at this point, if I may. Hi, thanks, Rhiannon. Um, I was actually just going to say before David answered that question, when he started talking, I was thinking more if you, um, to uh, from the chat, sorry, of the like think across subjects and um, sometimes I think especially when we're talking about the novice especially when we're talking about like the low ability groups um I think first of all instead of thinking across subjects we need to actually think across our own subject really and make sure that these lower attaining students know the links um just in, within our maths or within whatever subject we're teaching before we then make the links elsewhere or maybe make the links you know maybe smaller but if we are thinking about oh how can we how can we um, cross this over to like a different subject think oh god have they do they know many links in our own subject at the minute you know especially if they are novices that's that's kind of what I wanted to put in for that little comment no absolutely and I think that's one of the things that especially the new A-level was bringing in especially uh, particularly for maths is that not seeing each of the different disciplines that are looked at in maths as separate is it's forcing them to be linked and connected and, and also to be taught that way. Um, and I think in the session where we were talking with Mark McCourt about problem solving, he said, well, you need to give a certain amount of maturation to it for two years. So if you're giving students some problems to solve, think about what they were doing in their mathematics two years ago to enable them to have had the time, the maturation, the, the linking of all of the other aspects of what they're doing with it as well. So, oh, brilliant. Thank you, David. Uh, Dave T, I'll bring you in here if I may. Thanks, I'm going to embarrass Una now because she gave some uh, CPD to our department today um, and, and it was absolutely fantastic. And it really helped me to link um, some of the ideas in here. Um, so we were looking within our subject um, and the idea of um, sequencing and one small step at a time with some of those novice learners. And at the same time, some of the questions you could ask or scaffold that really encourages the reflection. So looking at Craig Barton's work, for example, and how uh, we can encourage that reflection and that, that sort of um, that deeper thinking um, that, that we want from those students, from those experts. So it's not so much um, just instructional, it's, uh, it's actually getting them to think about the problem as well. So um, it's really helped me to link those ideas, just building on what I just said with the abstract as well, and to really see what it looks like in the classroom. And it might be quite helpful to hear um, shortly from uh, if there's anybody else in the room that uh, sort of a science specialist from their perspective, from math, or different things like that. Um, I know we've got Sean Delahoy here, who's the lead for English, and there are other subjects out there as well that would that would have skills that um, are more transferable between those sorts of subjects too. But I also have David Dido with his hands up, so I'm going to hand over there. Yeah, no, I, I, I think that was a great point that, um, that Una made and, uh, and really, really important that being able to see connections uh, within, you know, within mathematics, you know, which is a subject where at school I couldn't see the connections between the different aspects of the course that I was studying. I had no idea how they linked up. 
and uh, they all seemed completely atomized and existing within weird math silos that I didn't I, I didn't know about. And so I think that uh, possibly one of the dangers of the split between expertise and novice is that as as relative experts as teachers, um, th there's a likelihood that you understand those differences implicitly. And whenever we understand something implicitly, you know, one of the one of the hallmarks of expertise is that we systematically overestimate what other people, uh, the, the knowledge that other people share. So we 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 are likely to assume that students are going to be seeing a lot of the things that uh, that we don't see. And I wanted to to draw your attention to a, a, a part of the book which wasn't actually in that section. It's on page one hundred and eighty nine. If you want to look at it later, and uh, I was talking about one of my favourite um, studies, uh, some doctoral research by a woman called Elizabeth Newton, who. Um, it, basically divided a, a group of subjects into an expert group and a novice group and the expert group um, were given a list of popular songs and uh, and they were coached on how all of those songs you know the, the melody and the rhythm of all, all of these songs and so that they knew them well enough and then the the job of this these expert groups was to be partnered up with a novice who didn't have access to the list and then they would tap out I don't know if you can hear me tapping, tap out the rhythm of the song um, for their novices. And so un I don't know if you've ever tried this yourself at home. It's bloody hard. And uh, and 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 unsurprisingly, the novices are really bad at it. And I think from memory, they got about sort of two percent of the of the of the of the, the the songs they were asked to listen to correct. But what was quite interesting was that the the tappers estimated that their novice partner would get around about 50% correct you know an extraordinary overestimate and and sort of if we extend that metaphor and think that often as teachers we we are tapping out a subject knowledge where we can hear the melody in our heads but the kids just hear the rhythm and we're assuming they're sharing in the melody as well but often they're just they're there crying oh, what is this what uh -huh. And they're guessing, and they and and I think there's we 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 underestimate quite how much of that is going on um, in 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 what we're doing. And I think maybe the courses we teach are are not necessarily helpful in trying to join up. That if you look at some one of the things I really like about some of the humanities courses is they have these uh, synoptic elements which are designed to bring the different elements of the course together and whether even though they're not necessarily in our specifications whether we could try to introduce a synoptic way of assessing mathematics just to, to build up students expertise or, or whatever subject we're teaching that might be an interesting avenue to explore shoot me down um you you know your subjects i'm guessing but uh, i'll i'll shush on that no, that's great. Thank you. I, we've got two hands who are raised already. So I'll start with Lucy and then I'll come to, um, is it Sarah Jackson? Sorry, it says Mrs. S. Jackson on the screen. I'm sorry if I've got that wrong. So uh, Lucy, over to you first. 
Yeah, just what you were saying about the tapping. I don't know if everyone's read the article, um, but the the little bit that you put on two two hundred and forty three, um, where you've got the passage where you've changed the letters of BBC and ITV and same, I read it, I hadn't read it before. The first time I read through that, you're right, I was totally struggling to understand what that passage was all about, um, to understand, you know, the longer words and the actual context and everything. When I then read the second one, oh, it's just about the BBC and not trying to copy, I see it's absolutely obvious. And I wonder how often do I do that? How often do I think I'm making perfect sense? But perhaps some of the language that I'm using, perhaps some of the vocabulary, it's just above their heads and therefore they haven't understood what's a relatively simple context because I'm just, and it's that cognitive load thing again, isn't it? I'm just giving them too much at once. So I, I thought it was an amazing example. I really liked it. So thank you for that. I think was it in a, it might've been in a conversation with you, David, um, you linked Dave and I to something about, it was, it was problems given in two different contexts. One of them was about, trying to deduce who it was when people are having a drink. It could have been a Craig Barton podcast, knowing my luck on this one now, about people having a drink and what, what are the different rules you need to know to see whether or not that they've, they've understood it or they've, they've broken the law. And when it was in the context of somebody having a drink and knowing what the legal um, age is for being able to drink, it was much easier then than when it was in the abstract and letters A, B and C and odd and even numbers. And being a mathematician, you'd think I'd be able to follow logic and ABC and numbers, and I, and I couldn't. I had to listen to what they were talking about four times whilst I was walking the dog to be able to start getting my head around what, what they were talking about. And that's when something I assumed I'd be able to get my head around. It, such great analogies on here and much better described than my little waffle there. So Mrs. S. Jackson, over to you, please. Thank you, Rhiannon. Thank you. Um, yeah, I'm. I'm just really keen to explore this idea about um, the your the cognitive overload and trying to get to grips with how we actually explain the bigger picture. So, for example, and I'm a math teacher as well, um, and I really struggle when it comes to algebra. Um, and even with my higher level groups, they want to know how are quadratic equations um, used in real life. Now, I would very happily you know, blab on and give them some real life examples and get to the board and draw things. But I feel that that goes away from where we're trying to actually work and, and trying to actually teach them the process and the procedure. And I'm, I'm really struggling not to put the cart before the horse because I want to show them the bigger picture. I want to show them the sandcastle and then give them all the tools that they need to build it. But instead, I keep introducing the little tools that they need to work on something that they may not be even introduced to until they go on to further education. And I, and I, I find that I really struggle with that as a teacher. It's just what I'm trying to say is, is, is trying to get those skills across without, first of all, explaining how important they may be. Yeah, when do you introduce it in a wider context? Um, without blowing their minds too much, as you say, with cognitive overload. Um, does anybody have anything to add, a comments, reflections, suggestions on that one, um, what they've done in their own teaching, what they've read? Um, Dave, Dave T, I'll come to you if I may. So yeah, it's just, um, I, I think when you, you look at something like that, it's, it's really, um, it's easy to want to go into too much detail there. And I think that what I've learned from reading, and I think it was Craig Barton again, I'm sorry, but it was um, talking about how you introduce it on a basic level. 
So you talk about, well, it's going to, you're going to use it in aviation um, and you give a little hook at the beginning of the lesson, but you don't go into too much detail. So the hook needs to be there for uh, past that motivation aspect that I feel. Um, but then, then you go into the mass and talk about how we're going to go through a longer process now. Um, and, and you don't then go into a lot of the detail at that stage. Um, it's very sort of generic, it's very holistic, very big picture. And then um, as you start to progress and they become experts, you can then start to, to sort of um, connect back to what you said at the beginning. Don't know if that is, um, you know, a, a good way of approaching that or not. Um, it, feel, it feels right for what I'm reading, but very open to people to, to talk and chat and, and challenge anything there. It's where the students tend to remember the fact that you've given them smarties in a lesson sometimes and actually <laughs> the point you were trying to portray. Um, Wayne, you've had your hand up and then I'll come to you, David, Didow, and then to Una, if I may. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm free. I'm free of a, a child now climbing on my back. Um, yeah, so I think I'm sort of similar to Dave. I I know that when I sort of teach something, I don't always go into sort of like great detail about why and how it's used, but I will show them how first. And if it's like a multi-step process as well, then I might not even show, I won't show them all the steps either. I'll just be like, look, just trust me on this one. I'm going to show you this one little step. Then I'm going to show you the next little step. And then at the end, I'm going to show you all five steps put together. I'm going to say, right, we've done that, we've done that, we've done that, we've done that. Now look at this amazing mass that we can do, like this really hard mass that if I showed you it all at once, you'd probably like tell me to go somewhere else. Like, but by doing that and breaking it down into those little things, it's it just makes it means that they can be successful with it and then they can access higher mass than they thought they could probably do. That's brilliant. Thank you for that, Wayne. Yeah, I must admit, putting together the online lessons, thinking about how I'm breaking different bits and pieces down and chunking um, for pre-recorded lessons is, has been at the forefront of my mind quite a lot recently. Um, David Dido, if I may come to you now, that would be great. You did have your hand up, but you've taken it down now. Well, uh, yes, because you'd acknowledged me. That's the etiquette in the classroom, isn't it? Um, uh, you know, I don't want to be Hermione. Um, so uh, what was it? Yeah. So I think that, that making links to the real world is a sort of or, or talking about our subjects in terms of what they're for and how they can be used and, and how the real world makes them valuable it can be a double edged sword. I mean, for instance, you can say, you know, you can use trigonometry to build bridges, but that's a can of worms. You're never actually going to well, I'm assuming you're not going to take it that far and get into the sort of hard engineering aspects uh, where mathematical equations are, are become useful. Um, it's 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 the the difficulty there is that um, you know to be able to see that and for it to have meaning, you've got you, you've probably got to be relatively expert. And probably in more than one domain, you know, they're even as mathematicians, you know, you've probably still got pretty sketchy ideas about how bridges are constructed, um, even though you might understand the, the the principles that go into sort of designing the, the curves and all the rest of it. But um, it, I, I do think it's worth coming back to, to that sort of the aspect of the subject of, of how does 
algebra link to the other branches of mathematics that we've that we've been studying and how does it make sense within this slowly expanding schema and by the way as a top tip my because it's my bet noir that you know why do, why do we have to learn this is what why are we ever going to use this and my my response to that if you're if you're interested is it makes your mind a more interesting place to spend the rest of your life um i like that I'm just writing that down. So it makes your mind a more interesting place to spend the rest of your life. Thank you. It's it's better than my my usual mum answer was because I told you to do it. <laughs> Which I, obviously I don't do in a classroom. So uh, thank you, David. That was great. Um, Una, you had your hand up. You've taken it down. Is that right? Is that wrong? Yeah, well, yeah David shamed me into putting my hand down. So uh, I didn't want to be like one of those kids. Um, yeah, so, but um, I was just, no, I was going to say basically what Dave and then David said, um, uh, just answering Sarah's question, you know, when when the kids kind of do want to know where they're going to use it. and And I think... Uh, what I was going to say is, I think I'm quite fortunate because I, ha I was a mechanical design engineer for seven years before I became a teacher. Um, so I can instantly just give them an example of exactly where I've used this. But I do it in maybe two minutes, like two minutes flat and say, this is where it's used. So basically then to get their buy-in. So therefore I've stopped them from being distracted, going, oh, we're never going to use this. So I've given them, yes, you will use this, given them quite a good example but then stop it. So now I've got their buy-in so they don't have that negativity and then we're ready to start. But I wouldn't kind of go off on a tangent about it. And then if, to be honest, if they're interested enough, they'll come back to me, which a lot of them have at lunchtime and go, oh, I'm going to apply for this course or whatever. But um, but yeah, I, I just wanted to put in that I would like do a couple of minutes just to get the buy-in to then, then you've got them focused again on, on what we actually want them to attend to. Thanks, Una. That's great. I'd like to welcome Ian to the room. Ian, you have your hand up. Thanks, Rihanna. Hi, everybody. Um, sorry, I've got my camera off because um, similarly to Wayne, although not quite, I'm being regularly um, mithered by a high and overweight cat, and I don't think that anybody needs to see that. Um, I don't want to be shamed for my pet management. Um, yeah, I think just building on that, I, I really liked um, what Una was saying there. Um, that I think sometimes the trying to shoehorn in the practical examples you know especially in maths um it the examples that you give um can become or can seem even more abstract if you like to the students because the um the, the difference between the level that they're operating at in the area and the level that they need to be operating at in the area to relate to the examples that you give is such that actually it, it doesn't doesn't necessarily I mean I like the idea of just mentioning it like you suggested um, it doesn't necessarily sort of bridge that gap and I think that in some ways the sort of to bring it back to the novice and expert bit you know the um, the sell if you like to them is that they will see the beauty in whatever you're doing you know the better that they get at it so you know I think that trying to um, sell them the path to experts um, allows them to sort of to 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 see the the 
yeah the beauty or the you know start making the links that you're that you're trying to um you know that you're trying to encourage and i think that works obviously it works in maths but i mean i suppose it works across you know all subjects i'd have thought you know i'm sure that the um the students uh get so much more out of you know understand so much more if they understand more of you know a shakespeare play or whatever they're studying that i almost i don't know i'm sometimes i'm really reluctant to um allow them to get away with oh well we don't know we don't know why this is practical to us so so we're not going to be interested in it because you know i think that's a little bit of an easy get out for them and you know and i think it's fine to them to say you'll never use this in the practical world but you'll get so much enjoyment about understanding how it works yeah that self that sense of self satisfaction and being successful and pride i mean uh, we've got other subjects in the room and i'm almost going to pick on sean in a minute as well and, and wayne's already done that in his question there for english i mean it must come up when you're trying to cover a text with a classroom at some point you'll you'll sort of go right okay so here we go we're going to do a bit of shakespeare here and they go oh okay that guy is really old what what's the point in covering this or you'll cover texts that are written in such a way that actually they find it quite hard to get their head around to begin with i mean what do you do do you give them an overview of the whole thing straight away do you break it down into chunks what's the sort of approach that you tend to use and you haven't put your hands up sean but you posted a question so i am going to bring you into the room now i'm afraid <coughs> thanks ray um I, I didn't pose a question i was just listening to I, i'm probably sitting here silently because i'm surrounded by maths teachers i think and it's apart from david and it's making me slightly nervous <laughs> Uh, I, I didn't pose a question. I just, um, it, what you were talking about, you know, how far do we go into the hinterland when we're explaining new concepts just reminded me of a, of a, of a really good blog by Alex Quigley, another English teacher brought into the room um, called Infectious Explanations, uh, where, where he breaks down a few steps of, of how we unlock um, new ideas, uh, part of that being analogy. And it's, it, it's, it's really tricky, isn't it? how far do we go taking them into some sort of um, abstract concepts and I think that's I think I'll lean back on David uh, Dida now it's something that he touches on in this section of his book you know we have to start with the concretes before we can get to the abstracts I suppose uh, David could you explain a little bit more about about what that means and how we do that uh, Thanks, Sean. yeah thank you thanks Sean um, well the 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 only way that we have to understand an abstraction is by is by is by developing it in concrete terms and it's so all of the the thinking we do is is uh, by by um, comparison and by and by coming up with new categories and so the in order to understand something you have to you have to be able to see that it's a little bit like that or 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 it's connected to this in some way and the more categories that you have in your in your long-term memory then the the more quickly you'll find links and connections and so in order to think abstractly and this is this is perhaps the intersection between am i my aunt yeah this is the intersection between maths and english is that all thinking is metaphorical so that the 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 although you're teaching mathematics you're teaching in metaphors 
uh, to allow your students to understand what they're doing. And obviously the quality of your of your metaphor um, is going to it's going to do a lot of the heavy lifting in them being able to sort of go, oh, OK, it's a bit like this. Um, and, and, and of course, the more maths knowledge they have, the, and they're going to find it easier to see connections between different mathematical functions and formulas and approaches and strategies. Uh, that's going to make it more easier to do as well. But because you're because you're entirely working in the realm of abstraction, you know, when you've got beyond, you know, you've got five beans and seven beans and how many beans have you got? You know, that obviously that's quite a, a concrete thing to do. But the minute you, you know, that some areas, things like um, Neg like negative numbers that they just don't exist in the real world and the, the way I've heard it explained sometimes you know that pe people comparing a negative to like digging a hole just doesn't just just doesn't map well onto children's understanding of the world and they're like uh what and then they get bogged down with the concrete because the concrete isn't actually a, a good map until you're sufficiently expert to kind of fill in the blanks and go, okay, so, you know, I'm going to explain away these aspects of the metaphor and just use the bits that are useful. Um, and, and so it's, it's, I think, a process of trying to refine down your metaphors. And so, you know, I think one of the most useful things you can probably do as a, as a subject group of teachers is, you know, what are your analogies for teaching this? What, what analogies do you draw when you're doing that? Oh, that's a great thing to add to my repertoire. And because the more that you've got access to, the, the more likely you are to be able to hit upon something where students go, oh, it's a bit like that. Ah, now I, and then they begin to pass their their way through that 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 threshold into a broader understanding of the other side. I don't know if that's too highfalutin to make any sense, but um, now you've got thumbs up and and nods from around the room on that one. And um, I don't know. I would just. I was wondering, we, we do have other subjects in the room, and I know there's a there's a number of maths people in here as well, but I'm thinking um, a little bit about some work that um, our MFL lead across a few of our schools has done recently, Sophie Bowers. And what they do in MFL is sometimes what, what can happen in languages, you can do a load of work on past participles and you can move on to something else. And then it's how do you focus on the different areas and the different sections of vocabulary that they need to look on. So what um, I think my understanding of it with, with MFL, which is a little bit limited, I must admit, is that when they do a section on, say, home life, they do everything from the beginning on home life. They do the different um, grammatical structures and they have a sequence and a routine that they follow. And then when they go into the next module, they follow that same grammatical sequence and routine as well. So the students are learning and acquiring new knowledge and new words and vocabulary, but also you've got the grammar, um, the, the, the strands of grammar and the different approaches for how to put different bits and pieces together. That is running through it at the same time. And I thought that was a really, actually a really nice way of doing it because you have, if you have students that come in and out for different reasons, which quite often you can have in modern languages, if they come in at the beginning of a new section, then that's okay because they'll still get the grammatical structures behind it and they won't miss out on all of the other aspects as well. So we've got, we've got other subjects in the room. Um, did anybody else um, want any to add anything from their particular point of view? Or I know we've got some teaching and learning leads, etc. Or just simply any other reflections and questions for David, really. 
everybody's just thinking too much tonight, aren't they? Um, Sarah, you still have your hands up. I don't know if that's a hangover from earlier. Uh, but Deb, um, you put your hands up. If I could bring you in, please, that would be great. Hi. Sorry, I had to drop out of the meeting to go to a parents' evening appointment and come back again. So I'm hoping no one said what I'm just about to say. <laughs> um, so when I was reading this chapter, one of the things that kept coming up into my head when we were just talking about novices and experts were how do I cope with a class of 30 plus students where I think some of those over there are novices, some of those are experts? How, how do I deal with that? David, that one's over to you, I'm afraid. Well, um, so what I would start by assuming is that none of them are experts. Um, they, some of them might possess greater knowledge than others, but that none of them are likely to be experts. And uh, you know, when 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 um, psychologists um, design experiments to test these expertise effects, essentially, you know, like the classic. Um, uh, um, piece of seminal research was comparing physics undergraduates with physics postgraduates and that physics undergraduates were considered novices because when they were given problems to sort they sorted them on superficial features whereas the postgrads sorted them and, and saw deeper underlying connections where they saw okay these are all the similar kind of problems and the superficial connections are actually irrelevant um, and so what I would the you know, you might occasionally come across uh, students who have surprising and deep um, knowledge that approximates your own. But in that's going to be so rare that I would I would I would instead sort of think about the fact that there are going to be students that are going to be doing less guesswork. They're going to have more of their melody filled in and they're going to understand more of your explanations and and get more of the, your instructions and students who will who will get fewer but the thing is the, the the thing that i would suggest is that taking into account things like an, a, an understanding of of um uh, the principles behind cognitive load theory are going to be a useful stepping stone for all so as you probably or you might you might not be but you there's a great deal of research on the kind of the stepping stone process in in mathematics so looking at uh, faded instruction so having worked example problem pairs which which subsequently miss out more and more of the steps so that as they as their level of expertise gradually increases they're having to do more thinking they're having to do more retrieval to kind of like get through to the bit and then once you've gone you've gone through and you've faded instruction to the point where the 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 worked example and the problem that students are going to work on are relatively close then it's uh, as i as i understand it moving to goal-free problems is the is the kind of next step in your process going here's here's a situation here's a mathematical scenario what can you spot what in what does the information here what what could it mean um, and and allow, getting children to think about the you know the presentation of data or the you know or, or the or whatever it is in those very very open ways encourage them when they've had that they've had that grounding in the in the the slow accumulation of of knowledge leading up to you know sort of part of the process towards expertise but it's still a long way off. Um, but but that's the that 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 fading of instruction moving to less prescription 
trying to harness that idea of the expertise reversal effect is probably something that you you'll get a sense of within your own classroom so you'll you know, you can even say to um you know you've got a class with some children who are seem to be grasping things more quickly than others then you you can just you know if you've if if you've got tabletop resources you can say i'm going to give you the the a more faded version of that problem so i'm going to take away the one you're working on you don't need that level of explanation have that one instead and that can be potentially quite a, a good plug and play way of doing fast and dirty differentiation now sounds brilliant i think a, a few of the people around here might know the term hints papers or hinting something up that's a lot like the fading and um uh, the backwards fading approach that david's talking about there which is all through uh, Craig Barton's new work as well. Um, Sean, you put your hand up and so did, I think, is it Brad? You put your hand up as well. So if I bring you in after Sean, that would be fantastic. Thanks, Ray. Uh, yeah, a little bit more confident now I've said something. Um, a question for you, David, um, thinking about the extract and uh, some of the points you've made about novices and experts in our classroom, um, how, how should that influence our curriculum design? Oh, nice. Wow, uh, that's a very big question. Um, so, I suppose it's 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 the the, the trade-off, the balance is always trying to give students as broad and as rich a picture of the subject. Um, uh, that has to be traded off against their their limited ability to perceive what's going on. And so um, maybe that the you know one one approach to 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 thinking about curriculum is to is to think about it as being something that that slowly extend outwards, that you're getting a slightly bigger, you're you know you're seeing through a, a keyhole and as the as the, the blanks are filled in, the universe expands and you get to see more and more of what's going on. And, and maybe that expanding universe model might be a really interesting way to look at a subject like, like mathematics. Um, I think for, a, for, a, for other subjects, so for, as, you, as you know, Sean, you know, for a subject like English, uh, I, I really favor the idea that you're, you're telling, you're, you're communicating a narrative, that there's a, that there's a narrative hook that what you're beginning with is is some kind of starting point and then everything that is subsequent to that is built upon what you introduced first you know, i don't know enough about the the content of mathematics courses to advocate that particularly but you know i i, I do like the idea that it is all eventually connected and and you can kind of see more of those connections as you work outwards that that feels intuitively that it might be a nice way to, to think about a maths curriculum, but please tell me why I'm wrong. Well, no, it's, it's, there are just so many different approaches, aren't there? And we always try and think of something in a nice linear way. We can put one brick after another and just follow that path. But as um, Wayne has just mentioned in the comments section, um, complete maths have done a maths universe where it's got all the different connections and nodes and strands of how everything links together it is simply incredible so those people who do try and make it a, a, a purely linear approach miss out on all those connections and and i think all of the different points that have been raised already about the interconnectedness 
not not just across subjects but within our subject of different strands and disciplines within there as well and for us to see that also um brad i'd like to bring you in here if i may yeah thank you and uh, thank you for having me in the group as well um <clears throat> So I'm a uh, head of teaching and learning at my school right now, but I'm also a music teacher. Um, and so I wanted to uh, just present something and suggest something that I've thought for a long time with music teaching as a model. And I think specifically uh, instrumental teaching. And we know that a lot of this, like the Anders Ericsson sort of peak model of this deliberate practice, which a lot of has, has influenced a lot of teaching there just seems to be um, a great simplicity to this idea that that we missed out, and, and I guess you you pointed towards it as well, Rianne, about this, this what what used to be the model of having to be linear, and you teach a unit of a topic, and then you move on to the next one, having totally completed and dealt with that one topic, whereas the opposite of that would seem to be a, a, the the model of learning the piano, where you do the same scales every single lesson literally from the moment you start doing lessons to the day you die um and you just continue on this progression of, of repetition and building and i think it seems in the educational world now that the research is and and schools are coming back much more around to this idea of the value of repetition um and i'm just wondering how much that can inform uh curriculum design um, and, and to what extent on that uh, scale, you if you will, of, you know, sh should subjects continue to go towards repetition over uh, breadth, I guess. Yeah, that's, um, so music is, is such a fantastic subject because as you say, the, the nature of learning an instrument um, actually supports now a lot of what's coming through in with with regards to um, good approaches to teaching and learning. My husband's a jazz saxophone player. That's what he did at university. He's a primary teacher as well, but he's a he's a jazz saxophonist. So when my daughter, who's learning to play the flute, says, "Oh, I really don't like learning my scales. What's the point? All I want to do is sit and play a piece of music." Um, my husband says, "Well, actually, you need your scales for if you want to do some compositions." or if you want to do some improvisation, your scales is where you show your true understanding and interconnectedness of, of what is going on. So it's a very, very different discipline to being a, um, a classical musician reading the dots than it is to be a jazz musician. And one doesn't automatically lead to the other. You're right, Brad, we've got a lot to learn from music next. Now, David has his hand up, so I better not keep him waiting any longer. Okay. Yeah, no, uh, I was just going to reflect on the, the point you made there about linearity, uh, both you, Brad, and, uh, and Rhiannon, that the conundrum for us is that we exist in linear time, and so we think linearly, um, and it's very, very difficult for us to, to step outside of that. And the big challenge of of uh teaching is our goal doesn't exist in the present it, it's as it, we, what we're teaching for is elsewhere and later and so that's very very difficult to focus on in the here and now um, and so finding structures to help us focus um is is 
to help us maintain an awareness that that we're not that that whilst we're living our lives forward um that the, the learning that students are doing is much messier than that um is probably really useful so obviously i say obviously definitely you know that the cycles of repetition are an idea that's been present in education since brunner came up with his idea of the spiral curriculum back in the 1960s and i wrote a little bit about that if you're interested if you've got the pdf on page 121 I think you're muted there, David. Why? Was I just doing that for about five minutes? No, only for a second. One long, one long. Okay. Uh, so was, was was all of that muted? It's from when you gave a page number, it muted. Oh, okay. Sorry. So page 221. Um, uh, I, I, I thought remember. it was my earphones. I don't know what happened. Sorry. That was weird. Maybe somebody did it to me. It was probably Rhiannon. Sorry about that one, it's probably me here somewhere. So um, yeah, what page number was it, David, so we can make that for next time? 221. 221, thank you, that's great. Um, Lucy, I'll, I'll bring you in here and then I'll, I'll start rounding the session off actually, because I've got a feeling this one could quite easily run away with itself before we realise. Oh, hi. It's, it's changing a little bit of topic, but it's just something I wanted to ask that I've made note of from, from the passage. Um, so on page 239 and 240, you talked a little bit about how students starting from the same point um, learn differently. So even students starting at the same point made different progress. And uh, I think one of the things you said is, is the ability to recognise their mistakes and improve independently that differentiated the most accomplished students. And I wondered, is there anything, I thought that was actually something practical that I would like to take from the session. Is there anything that we can do to help students recognise their mistakes? Is there anything we can do to help them be, make better progress to be more accomplished students? Or is that just innate in them or is that something we can't change? What do you think? That's brilliant. Over to you, David. Uh, it's, I don't think it is innate. No, I think it's, you know, it's, it's, it's something that emerges as a result of expertise. But I, I de so, so the, the, the more expert your students become, the better able they'll be um, to reflect on, you know, patterns of progress and, and mistakes that they're making. But I think there are potential hacks um, to that, to that process. And so you might, uh, you might have come across um, and I talk about it elsewhere in the book if uh, if you're interested about mental representations or mental models and so there's been there's been quite interesting research which looks at the fact that that the the more expert there are you you are part of that expertise is rooted to the fact that you have a suggestion of what success looks and feels like in your head and you can cross reference between current performance and that ideal performance that you have stored mentally. And so uh, one of the things uh, that we can do that I think makes a great deal of difference is to think that there's a continuum that we're on between success and struggle. And that, that I, I would advocate and suggest that the most important starting place for students is they experience success uh, with a lot of help and a lot of support and a lot of structure, but they, they have that mental model of what success looks and feels like, a, a schema of success so that 
when you start withdrawing support and, and fading instruction and it, it, expecting them to work more independently, they've got something to refer back to that's meaningful in their long-term memory. And I think one of the, the problems that exists, um, I don't know whether to, to the, what extent this exists in maths, but certainly in, um, in English as a subject, one of the big problems is, is that the kind of scaffolding and structure we provide for students is, is not systematically or properly taken away. And the mental model they have of what good academic writing looks like is actually a bit shit. Um, and so, so the, the model they're mentally to working towards is, is not a good model. So, they, 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 so that they're, they're aiming for something mediocre, which obviously um, has, has um, real drawbacks. So trying to build in a really, really successful result outcome, no matter how much help and support and structure you gave to make that possible, is one uh, really, really important potential starting point. And the other is when we acknowledge that as experts, we, we uh, a lot of the time we're doing that tapping out of our subject knowledge and, and a lot of the explanations that we give only make sense to other experts. So someone else, you know, another mathematician watching your lesson would go, makes complete sense to me. Whereas for novice kids, they're, it, the explanation only makes sense once they've mastered the content. Then they're going, oh, why didn't you say so? Well, you tried. It just didn't make sense to them at the right time. And so acknowledging that, it's what you, allowing students to mimic what you do is far more important than getting them to attend to what you say. So what you say is, is you know, filtered through all sorts of things which are going to decrease the meaning they'll make from it. But if you allow them to mimic you and you narrate your processes and you say, I'm doing this because, and this is this, this phase of the problem I'm working on is this, here are the range of possible approaches that I could choose. And I'm gonna choose this one now because I'm hoping that this will be the outcome. You know, giving that kind of meta-narrative of um, our approach and allowing them to copy is, uh, is a, a, probably a good bet in helping them to develop robust and and successful mental models that allow them to strive higher i don't know if that's helpful no i think it i think that's incredibly helpful and mark mccourt said exactly the same thing when it came to trying to help support students with problem solving he said you model for them how you problem solve and one thing for me is I also don't shy away from making mistakes in front of students or to do something live in front of them, because I think it's really important that they know that you won't always get things right. And no matter where you are, the, the, the difference is in seeing and spotting where you might have gone down a slightly wrong path. And then if you share with them what your triggers were and what your thoughts were about it, and then the process you, you go through and the considerations and the decisions you make, that's really, really important. So they know that they're not the only ones that do that also. You don't always look at something and know exactly what you're going to do straight away. You sort of tease your way through with your domain specific knowledge and use that to help, to, to help you find a route which might not always be the best route 
No, that's absolutely brilliant. Now, this session has been simply incredible. I would like to, if that's okay, just read something um, that I think it's Victoria has, has posted in the chat. And she said, what resonated with me as a performing arts teacher, yes, more disciplines in the room, was the section on page 239, the idea that some students will have a better mental representation of what a performance might look or sound like. I've built in a lot more modelling and we do activities so that students have this before deliber deliberate practice and building in these opportunities for mental representation, comparing against an expert model has had a noticeable impact versus constant repetition of skill. So what we've had tonight is where we, where me as a maths person and the conversations I've been having about different approaches are actually being used in, in, the, in a commonality of language across so many other different disciplines and, and what we're doing with our students across our subjects this, uh, through our conversations this afternoon. So um, Claire Willis, definitely, I do, we do, you do is fantastic. Um, I think, and I know lots of schools and different um, places are working at how to distinguish between the I do, we do, you do, and be more explicit about that. And when it comes to actually what deliberate practice looks like in certain subjects and what an expert model might look like as well, remembering to give the students the tools that they need in order to be able to move on. And that's not just math specific. Um, that, that happens in a, a number of subjects. I know Sean and I have talked about this when we're, we're talking about English and maths as well. So it is, it, it, it has gone past 5.30 and I'm really sorry to have to bring it to a close. I know everybody's been incredibly polite up to this point. You, those of you who know me know that I could talk for hours. Um, but I'd like to thank everybody in the room for coming along this afternoon, in particular, David Dido, the richness you've been able to add to our conversations and our thinking processes and reflections has, has been invaluable. So thank you so much for your time and your support with what we're doing here. You are our second special guest and it's an absolute privilege to have you here. What I also like to do is thank Lucy, who I sort of asked today if she would do a sketch note or um, sl some slide notes for us to be able to share after this session. That would be fantastic. And anybody who wants to do one in a future session, that would be great. And Sean, who I asked a little while ago, if he wouldn't mind um, being the person to do a little bit of a takeaway for us today. What's the thing that that the one thing he's going to take away and reflect upon? Because I think it's always so often if we go to something, there'll be 1500 different fantastic ideas and solutions and, and things that we can look at. But actually, what one small thing are each of you going to implement immediately, think about, go away and look at? So I was really interested in today and hearing what Sean's would be. So over to you, please. Thanks, Ray. Um, well, well, I wrote down two in preparation and then I've just crossed them both out and written down one from a few minutes ago. And it was uh, David's point on, uh, do we have a schema of success that, that, we, that should be the starting point that we can build from with our students? You know, if we're talking about novices becoming experts, you know, that, that feels like a crucial uh, piece of the puzzle. So that's something I'm gonna go away and think about when I continue to look at the English curriculum. So thank you, uh, David and everybody else. And I'm gonna reread Victoria's point in the message because that was equally brilliant. Well, yeah, there are some really nice points um, in the discussion and David's just added arguably deliberate practice as conceived by Ericsson. 
doesn't or can't exist in schools. Um, in the book, he suggests purposeful practice as a light alternative. So there's more reading there as well. Um, thank you so much, everybody. I will, uh, uh, we've got our next session is a math session. It's on the 26th, but non-math people are welcome to come along. It, we're looking at how to teach math through um, pictures, really, more diagrammatic forms. And we're not talking simple stuff either. I think it's completing the square. So I'm really looking forward to Peter Mattock, who was the very first author who signed up to support what we do. So thank you ever so much. You take care.